Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church. City Church is a community of worshippers and mission. We exist to catalyze a gospel-centered movement that renews Lagos spiritually, socially, and culturally. You can find out more about us at www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos. Good morning. Our Bible reading is taken from Matthew chapter 5. From verse 38. Matthew 5:38 to 48. Jesus speaking. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, Hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes us his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Femi. Um, I'm not apologizing for it being hot now. I apologize because it's going to get hotter. This is my, my inner Pentecostal is trying to come out, so just help me, right? No, but I apologize for it. I don't know what's wrong. Uh, the AC seems to be fluctuating, and that's causing some kind of discomfort. So once again, I apologize for that, and also the technical mishap that we had before um, uh, the song for the word. Now, but welcome again. If you're here for the first time or you've not been here in a long time, uh, we've been running a series. Today, we're going into the sixth part of that series, and that series is through what has been famously called the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus gave um, in Matthew chapter 5 to 7. Now, what had happened is in the previous chapter, in chapter 4, Jesus had just started his ministry. And the first thing he did was to proclaim, the Bible says he proclaimed about the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. Then after that, as he was proclaiming it, he was demonstrating what that kingdom would look like. So he was casting out demons. He was healing people of their diseases. And so crowds gathered around him. That's very, very important because when crowds come, is that, that you set things straight. Because sometimes people project their own views on what you represent. So the Sermon on the Mount, as we see in chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, Jesus tries to do that by teaching them. And so what we have said is teaching them about the kingdom, and we've tried to put this series as um, 
describing what it means to be a kingdom citizen. In fact, the name of the series is Citizens of the Kingdom. And we said, look, if you're a member of a nation or a kingdom, at least today, you have a passport. And in our passport, we have 14 identities, 14 ways of describing. So if page one, our first sermon, was that we are contrite citizens, then page two was that we are persecuted citizens. Page three, we are missional citizens. Four, righteous citizens. Five, we are broken citizens. And today, restorative citizens. I don't know about some of us where we grew up. I grew up in Suruleri, in fact, in a place called Aguda. Suruleri, any, any whoops? Any? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, so Aguda Suruleri, fantastic upbringing. I loved it. In fact, we stayed on the longest street. It was a street called Adetola Street. And we stayed towards the end. And one of the things I remember, um, I really remember it vividly now because it's different, as I'll show, is how much we knew each other. At least I can say that, and you know those days, uh, how things were numbered. If you had 198 here, you have 197, right? If you had 195 here, you have 194. Today, now, it doesn't even, people just, I went to visit somebody recently at Tony Real Estate. I mean, uh, my wife and I, right? Number 18 was after, I think, number 70-something, right? <laughs> Who cares? You just put the numbers. Anyway, so things are well-structured. But also, it was a very cohesive unit. We knew at least about 20 people, I would say. You knew about 20. So if you stayed in 190, you probably knew 180 to 200, right? The children used to play together. We all knew the local uh, grocery store owner. Then you didn't have all this spa and all of those things. No, we had Papa Raymond, Papa Ray. We really called him Papa Ray because that time a song came out, Hip Hop Ray. Yeah, some of us know that. Hip hop, right? Okay, all right. Y'all, y'all, y'all saved and sanctified now. No problem. But you, I know you know it. <laughs> all right. So, Papere, you had the mechanic workshop. You know, um, what was his name again? Uh, they're all Muslim. So it was Ainde, eh, brother Ainde, and the wire was uh, Brasaka. You know, all of anything you needed in that community was all there. It was very together, very cohesive. Today, I live in a gated estate. On the left of our house is a showroom for the estate. On the right, our neighbors, and I don't even know my neighbor's name, the, the wife and the husband, I don't know. And yet, we're in a gated estate. It's gated. You think it's gated, so we're going to have much more uh, cohesion. And it's actually a reflection, because actually we moved out so late, not because we just wanted to, but it, was, it already began to fragment in the early 90s. And this is a reflection now of a growing problem. Most of us, the thing I said about my estate here, most of us, some of us will stay in apartments and you don't want to, you see that person, hey, what's up, but don't come near my house. There's so much fragmentation, there's so much brokenness in our society, and even in churches. Within, I'm not even talking about churches one another, there's fragmentation. And the only way you can go from a place, when you go from cohesion to brokenness is fragmentation. But how do you get from fragmentation back to cohesion? There's only one way, and it's called restoration. You want to restore that which was broken back to a cohesive unit. Now, in our passage today, Jesus shows us that the answer to brokenness is 
when restored people abide by restorative principles, or when restored people abide by restorative principles and laws. If we want to see societies, if we want to see communities crop up in our city that will be cohesive and eventually bring about the flourishing of the city, it happens when restored people live, create, and abide under restorative principles and laws. Now, citizens of the kingdom are meant to be restorative citizens. And if you want to see Lagos, as Francis showed or you saw in our vision statement, that we want to see a renewal of the city of Lagos, one of the things at least Jesus is going to teach us in this passage is if you flood Lagos with citizens of the kingdom, because citizens of the kingdom are restorative citizens, we will begin to see social renewal. Now, let's go into the passage today, and uh, the sermon today is restorative citizens, but Jesus gives us measures, different kinds of measures on how to achieve that. So we expand on it in three ways. One, restoration preventive measures. Two, restoration proactive measures. And then three, restoration decisive measure. That's preventive measures, proactive measures, and decisive measure. All right, so let's take the first one, restoration preventive measures. Now, we know that laws, or maybe you didn't know, but let me tell you, laws are given for the purpose of flourishing of those under its rule. So if you want to see people flourish, you give laws. Because if you don't have laws, then everybody does like they like. Remember the book of Judges, it says, in those days, they had no king, and everybody did what? Do you remember what happened in the book of Judges? Why are they flourishing? So laws are actually given not to restrict freedom, but to enable better freedom. However, you will not see flourishing if you have three different situations. One, if you have unjust laws and unjust people. So the laws are unjust, and the people are unjust. One example of that is Nazi Germany, right? The laws were unjust, very racist, uh, very fascist, and at the same time, the people administering those laws were horrible people. But in the second way, you can have, if you have unjust laws, but just people. And when I say just people, the example I'll give, are they really just people? Well, they're manageable. For instance, take segregated U.S. in the early and middle part of, um, of, um, of the 20th century with segregation laws, Jim Crow laws, all of those things. Now, a lot of Christians, unfortunately, a lot of Christians, Bible-believing Christians, supported the segregation. I don't want to say that they were not genuinely Christians, but they were certainly on that matter not acting in a Christian way. So you can have just people, but if you have unjust laws, you still would not have flourishing. There's a third one, and that is when you have just laws, but you have what? Unjust people. And during Jesus' time, that's exactly what we find in this passage. You see, the commandment of God's laws had started being interpreted and administered by many questionable people. If you notice in verse 38 and verse 43, Jesus opens with these words. You have heard that it was said. Jesus is addressing how they were hearing what had been said. 
God had given certain laws. They were hearing it. And how they heard it also affected how they interpreted it and how they applied it. So take, for instance, verse 43. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, this passage, that law was taken from Leviticus 19.18. Who can read it? Who can read it? You're not fast enough. I have it. I don't read it. Leviticus 19.18. Do not seek revenge or bear grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. What's wrong here? What's wrong here? Did you? Okay, let, let's see what they said again. They said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. In the original passage, there was no hate your enemy. But the way they had heard what had been said was, if I love my neighbor, because not everybody is my neighbor. That's the way they were thinking. If I, if I love my neighbor, if one is my neighbor, what do I do with my enemies? Oh, by implication, because you did not say love your enemies, I think what you mean is that I should love my neighbor and what? So you see, the problem was not with the law. The problem was with the people. And if I wanted to describe something that was particularly wrong with these people, I can say that they had become sinfully tribal. Sinfully tribal. What do I mean by that? Now, if you notice in verse 39, Jesus talks about an evil person when he says, do not resist an evil person. Who do you think that evil person, the people that were hearing that, who do you think they thought the evil person was? Well, the evil person was their enemy, as you see in verse 43 and verse 44. They would have thought, there's an evil person. Oh, I know evil people. They are my enemies. Why? Because I'm not an evil person. So when Jesus speaks about the evil and the good, as you see in verse 45, or he speaks about the righteous and the unrighteous, these people will see these people as their enemy. How do I know? Well, remember, there's a contrast between the neighbor and the enemy. So who do they see as their neighbor? Verse 46, Jesus says, if you love those who love you. Or verse 47, if you greet only your own people. So who, are my who is my neighbor? My own people. My people. I want to tell me. Right? Taiwo is my, when you say, my person. If I say Taiwo is my person, and I come in and I go, hey, Taiwo, my person, and Prosper is there. And Prosper is looking like, uh. <laughs> So I have made a quick distinction. She is my neighbor, and he is what? My enemy. And therefore, if I hear Jesus speak about an evil person, I am going to quickly identify that evil person as my enemy. This is the sin of tribalism. What is tribalism? Tribalism is a moral system based on subjective loyalty rather than moral, uh, objective morality. Tribalism is a, mor is a moral system based on subjective loyalty rather than objective morality. What do I mean? You are not saying in any way that we have this objective standard of measuring what is right and what is wrong. And so if you are so in the wrong based on these laws, let's say like a Ten Commandments, then you are an evil person. No, 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 no. The way we know who is an evil person or not an evil person is the person who is my own person. I have certain preferences. 
I have certain um, pet peeves. And if you fall under the good side of that pet peeve or those preferences, you're a good person. And if you don't, you're an evil person. So, for instance, let's take this chart. Oh, fantastic time to ask for the chart. Okay. All right, can we have it? I know it's not showing very well. Just have it. Now, for instance, we have these identity markers. And so there is one, maybe you'll, I'm sure you'll identify yourself here. So if, for instance, your identity marker, you are someone who prides, you know, poverty is something, you know, at least because the poor people are true people. Who will be evil? The wealthy people. And who will be good? The poor people. Let's say you are an elitist. Right? You like to read Ovation magazine. Your wedding was covered in Bella, Nigeria. You're one of the, the top echelon. So elitism is your own issue. Who would be? Nobody. Who would be the evil people? The nobodies. People that we don't count. Today, somebody was trying to enter, well, he was trying to make a U-turn into uh, this hotel. I don't know what happened. He and the gate man there got into an argument. And the gate man said, who are you? You are a nobody. And the guy said, I am a car owner. <laughs> I'm not lying. Francis was there. He, he was something. So you see, in his own moral elitist universe, the gate man is a nobody because the gate man doesn't have a car. But he's a car owner. Oh, sorry. And then what about if you are into partisan politics? And let's say you support the ruling party, the APC. Who are evil people? EDP. No power. And it continues over and over again like that. If you are into ethnicism, and let's say you're a Yoruba person, how many of us Yoruba people here say, my love for Igbo, don't marry an Igbo person. I know Igbo people. The way they're looking, that's how they'll be behaving. But, no, no, let's not go that. So, Ijebu people, that's an objective moral standard. All Ijebu people are, <laughs> let's, 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 please, let's not blaspheme. Is the, um, so back. You start to bring in an, a subjective moral system based on your own identity marker or some of your own preferences. Sadly, even in the church, let's say you are somebody that is so into experiences and all of that, people who are in the quote-unquote dead, dead orthodox churches, they are the evil people, those people that like to quench the spirit. But obviously, the good people are the Pentecostals. And if you are a very theologically wired kind of person, maybe you, are, you really like theology, everything has to be explained, doctrine, then the good people are reformed people. And then all those other guys, those Armenians that think they can save themselves, they're all evil people. The sin of tribalism. You greet only those that are your people. And you love only those that love you as well. And so what happens, Jesus says, is this thing, all of a sudden, it breaks societies. This way of thinking breaks societies. Have you ever argued with a tribal person? Have you? You find that they are never really listening to you. They, just, they end up misunderstanding and misapplying what you say so that they can just prove that their tribe is right. You see, with tribal people, our people are always right. They are the righteous. Right, righteous. And those people are always wrong, the unrighteous. 
And so it doesn't really matter. If you look at even in the American debate sometimes on some of these things, if you belong to the Republican Party, they're always right, no matter what. You cannot see objectively certain things that are wrong. You say, but I have to be loyal to my party. And what happens? Society starts to fragment. And so when even just laws are there, you start to misinterpret them and misapply them. And that's what happened with the famous law that is called in Latin lex talionis. This, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth that you see in verse 38. Now, if you read, there are other references, um, the earlier references um, in uh, Exodus 21, 23, 25, and Leviticus 24, 19 to 20. But if you read that particular law as given in Deuteronomy, chapter 19, Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15 to 21, what you will understand is that this law was never, ever meant to be applied privately. In fact, they said in 17, the two people, if, or 16, if a malicious witness takes to a stand and accuse someone of a crime, the two people involved in the dispute must stand in the presence of the Lord before the priests and the judges who are in office at the time. The judges must make a thorough investigation, and if the witness proved to be a liar, give, uh, giving false testimony uh, against a fellow Israelite, then due to then there is punishment for it. But notice, it is the priests and the judges that are meant to listen to what has been put on, and they are the ones that are meant to interpret and eventually apply. In other words, it was meant to be done publicly. So, for example, Yubukom. Festus come. Now, Yobo is here and Festus is here. Yobo and Festus get into an argument. Okay, let's not even say an argument. Who have, uh, some of us who played this, um, this um, uh, depraved game when we were in secondary school, did you ever do this thing? You put your hand like this. Uh, Tedo, I know you did this one. All right? So, so Yobo, Yobo and I start, and I do like this. Then Yobo now, remove your hand. Uh, you, see, you see what happened? I put it, put it again. How did you do my hand like that? Okay, you do that. The guy is getting hotter. And then I, well, let's end it there. Now, <laughs> what starts to happen? Increasingly, the slaps get hotter. Mm -hmm. As we keep going, keep going, the slaps get hotter. In the same way, maybe Yobo and Festo go into an argument. So Yobo eventually, Festo was so angry, he said, Your papa. And you were like, eh, my papa, wow, he slaps him. Like, you slap me. Ah, all I just said was your papa. Ah, which one is that one slap? Are you serious? So he now goes and he gets a, 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 a dagger and he stabs Yobo. Yobo said, ah, hey, if you were dealing with a Yoruba man that is all talk and action, that's a, okay. But I'm an Edu boy. I'll be a Edu boy. <laughs> I'm an Edu boy. Just wait. So Yobo now goes. But at this point, uh, Prosper is Festus's uh, brother. So he has already started seeing the fight. So Yobo now goes, gets his pistol, and now shoots Festus in the head. And Prosper sees it. So Prosper now says, ah, is that it? OK. Prosper now goes, gets a number of people. I know where Yobo lives. And he goes, and he wipes out the whole of Yobo's family. But there are people around in Yobo's neighborhood. And so they decide, eh, you came from that other side of town, right? So the people of that neighborhood now go and now go and wage war 
against all of the people in Festus' neighborhood. Where did it start from? Your papa. And from your papa, it turned into a slap. Lex Talionis, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, was meant to prevent this. In other words, if someone commits a particular crime, the, the just way to repay that crime is that an equal punishment is also given to that. So that there's equality. So that there's not this escalation. Why? Because if it escalates like that, imagine just a quarrel between two people has brought war between two surrounding places. Do you understand that? And so that was why it was given. It was given to restrict, restrict vengeance. But at this point, it wasn't justice that was driving them. It was vengeance that was driving them. Why? Because when unjust people start to apply just laws, it always leads to fragmentation. It always leads to brokenness. And so Jesus is asking us, and I don't know about you here, are you aware of your tribalism? Don't quickly say, well, you know, I married, I can marry anybody from another tribe, I can marry somebody from another country. Maybe your tribalistic instinct is not towards ethnicism. Maybe it's not. But is it to your own particular Christian theology? Is it in your partisan politics? Is it that every other person on that side of the divide, because they hold to that view, they are evil people? Is it that you cannot make friends with anyone that believes such a kind of thing? If we do that, we can never have a cohesive society. If we do that, we can never have a cohesive church. Someone always gave, some, there's an example I always, I've held on to when I heard the number of years ago. It says this. Before you say, let's say, um, we were talking about it in terms of theology. Before you come out and say this theology of this person is wrong, can you articulate that person's position in a way that that person says, I could not have said it better? I meet so many people, they start to argue with those. Somebody I was arguing about in this church, I won't call the person's name, about a certain position that I held. And you know, after a while, we went to the Bible, blah, blah, eventually the person said, that position that you hold, that's actually not that position. I said, ah, is it not me that holds the position? <laughs> now, the person I've met so many people that actually espouse that position in a very, very terrible way. My point is this. Before you then say, I disagree, and you are wrong, is do you know my position well? Because what tribalism loves to do is to set up straw men. Set up straw men. Give the worst examples and the extreme examples of a particular position. And obviously, once it's that ridiculous, you knock it down. But when you are saying, no, this is not what I hold, you, you, say, you explain the thing that you hold to, the person will still go back to that extreme position. Are you tribal? Are you just looking for that politician to do something that is wrong? You didn't really investigate what he did was wrong, but you just took the soundbite, and now you started spreading it. This is how our societies and our communities fragment. You know, the thing about tribalism is that it reveals our own brokenness. So we are part of the problem. So I'll say this on these preventive measures, that the healing of our society starts with people who at least, as a first step, at least refuse to fracture it further through tribalism. Now, if that's what we must not do, then what is it that we must do 
Second point, pro proactive um, measures. So the first one was preventive measures here, proactive measures. Now, if you go back to um, verse 39 and verse four, and 44, you know in, 40, in 38 and 43, Jesus had said, you have heard that it was said. But now in the next verse, Jesus says, but I tell you. So what Jesus is trying to do is that, now I'm going to set the record straight. This is how you heard it. But now I am going to tell you. He wasn't correcting the law. He was interpreting the law better. So Jesus gives us two radical examples of how we can have um, societies that are cohesive and uh, that live in harmony. So two of them, two, and they're both radical. Um, one is do not resist an evil person, and two, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So let's take the first one, verse 39. Do not resist an evil person. Now, before you run along, Jesus is not arguing, as some have, Tolstoy did this, he's not arguing for a society without policemen, or neither is he arguing for churches without church discipline. Now, for instance, we know that because Romans 13, Paul says this, Romans 13, 1, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever re rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For, for the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. In other words, God knows that in societies there will be people that are rebellious. And so he institutes people that would enforce the law. And in the church as well, 1 Corinthians, verse 5, uh, 1 Corinthians 5, 12 to 13, concerning a man who was sexually immoral, he says, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? This is Paul speaking. Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. So Jesus is not saying, by do not re resist an evil person, that you shouldn't have these control measures in society or in the church. But as we have seen in other times in the Sermon on the Mount, many times he exaggerates his speech. He uses a, an, a, um, um, a deliberate literary device, a hyperbole if you like, to, make, to push the force of his argument um, um, outside. So for instance, what he's doing with this do not reveal, uh, resist an evil person, he gives us four examples four examples to demonstrate one principle, which is this. Personal sacrifice displaces personal retaliation for citizens of the kingdom. Personal sacrifice displaces personal retaliation for citizens of the kingdom. Now, so, first one, he says, if you slap one on the, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other cheek also. Now, First of all, understand the slap. You know, I don't know how things are now. You know, nowadays, your children, you know, you tell them first thing, don't do it, don't do it again. Or, yeah, what are you not to do? You're not meant to do it again. You say, yes, or, yeah, come, give daddy a hug. Oh, you're such a good boy. You know, a second time, but daddy told you not to do it now. But daddy told you. Now you're hurting daddy. <laughs> Hurt my feelings. Don't do it again. Will you do it again? No. Or, yeah, come. You love daddy. I, and then the child does it again. I'm not happy. Go and talk to your mommy. 
And worse come to worse, you put them. When it has now escalated and there's nothing you can do, you have to bring out the nuclear option. You know the nuclear option? You go and stay in the naughty corner. That's the nuclear option. Gone are those days when you received a slap on the first one. You understand? And it wasn't just a slap. You know there are two different types of slap. Right? There's, there's this, okay, Abara, we're not going to Abara. There's, there's, okay, let me start with Abara. You know Abara? Abara is they bring your back and they now put it, boom! And when they put it there, you don't feel, it's like, ah, what happened? Nothing has happened. They're very clear, ah, there's something going on. And then the, the cry doesn't immediately come out. It's like, ah. And you come back, and then like 10 seconds after, <gasps> that's a bar. But that's not the worst one. There's the slap. There's a dirty slap. But the worst of them all was the backhand slap. Oh, that was only administered by skillful people. My dad's immediate younger sister, she was, she was skilled in it. You didn't even know when it was coming. So most of it was a knockout. So the auntie, well, why did you do that? <laughs> what is with the backhand slap? The backhand slap is not just I'm punishing you. It has derision inside it. I couldn't even use the front. It was there's something worthless. That was what they were talking about there. When he says it wasn't just an ordinary slap. It was a backhand slap. There was the, the most kind of insult slap that someone could give you, a Roman could give you, was with the backhand or a Jew. Now, what's Jesus saying here by turning the other cheek? He's not little, look, after he received that, my friend, it's not easy to give the other cheek. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that rather than retaliate an insulting backhand slap, turn the other cheek. That is, in, rather than retaliate, Jesus is saying, can you not sacrifice? Receive the pain. Because if we retaliate, eventually this brings about a breaking and fragmenting of society. And so for the one that says, if he wants to sue you and take a shirt, hand over your coat as well. Nobody really sued in that. They weren't suing. You know, he wasn't really saying that. That was not the point. The point is that rather than always seek our legal rights, because it's your shirt, rather than seek your legal rights, we must be prepared to sometimes abandon them and be defrauded. In fact, Paul builds on that in 1 Corinthians 6. He says, the very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. You know what he's saying? If you do that to your brothers and sisters, you will eventually break the community. And the third one, rather than irritably complain about imposed legal requirements upon us, because a soldier could tell you to actually legally write to take his bag for a mile and carry it. Rather than complain about it, he's saying that we as citizens of the kingdom, we as restorative citizens, we should embrace them cheerfully. And finally, on the last one, give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow you. He's not saying throw away every caveat. There are caveats in the Bible that says, Use your sense how you give your money, or else you'll fall into penury. But he's saying that you should not take, ah, right, says eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. So when I'm giving somebody money, what is in it for me? If I call you now and I tell you, like the mafia, you know, remember Don Corleone, one day 
I'm going to ask you a favor, and you cannot refuse. You're going to do me a favor that you cannot refuse. Why? Because it's helping you now. Don't apply that. It breaks society. Now, you see, all of these come at a personal cost. Exactly, they do. If we want to see cohesion and unity in our society, it will come at a cost. Personal sacrifice displaces personal rights and retaliation. The second thing he tells us to do is to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You say, ah, hyperbole, I understand, it's hyperbole again. No, it's not hyperbole. <laughs> Sorry, it doesn't work here. Love your enemies and pray for the ones that persecute you. And when he says your enemies, he's not merely talking about irritants here. He's talking about people that persecute you. I like the King James, those who despitefully use you. Pray for them. You see, oh, Femi, oh, I understand. I am already praying. When it comes to my enemies, I'm already praying. I'm praying that God will eliminate them. They should all fight. Holy God, it should just come down. Because I can assure you, if all my enemies are eliminated, this place will be blissful. I've been praying against Femi Akinwari. If Femi can leave this church, <laughs> it will be fine. So I am praying. After all, he said, yeah, Jesus said it. Pray against your enemies. Misinterpretation again. He said, pray what? For your enemies. Pray for your enemies. You know the funny thing is, you cannot genuinely pray for somebody and have ill will towards them. I don't mean, I mean genuinely pray for them. You can't. So sometimes, even the act of prayer, when you have a, 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 when you feel resentment building towards a particular person, sometimes prayer is not even to demonstrate that you have no ill will. It is to stop you from having ill will towards the person. Hey, what's, all this, what's this business about loving my enemies? So does that mean the same way I treat my best friend as I treat my enemies? No. The love always remains the same. The expression will be different. So if there's somebody there that normally I would like to wipe out because the guy has cheated me, he has done all manner of things, love may look like this. I just leave him in peace. He's not saying after somebody has cheated you, has bankrupted your company, not say, but, you know, let's go out for dinner and let's just talk. No, no, that's, it's not, don't, let's not be silly. But it's saying that we should not have resentment, bitterness. Do not allow any root of bitterness come out of you. We should not have that towards any person. In other words, what these people were doing was, it says, remember it says, greet those, you only greet those who are your people, you only love those who love you. In other words, for them, it all depended, it depended on how that person treated me or how that person was related to me. If the person loved me, I would love the person back. So it depends on how the person treats me. If the person was part of my people, I would greet the person. So it was dependent on the people. But Jesus here says that love should, is not conditioned upon the behavior or the nature of its recipient, but on the nature of its giver, so that you can be like the children of your Father in what? Heaven. It's not conditioned on them, it's conditioned on you. In other words, Jesus is saying, who's your daddy? 
Because I know if your daddy is the one that is in heaven, this is what he does. He sends his love indiscriminately. The same sun shines on those who are against him and those who are for him. The same rain falls on those who are righteous and those who are unrighteous. So the question is this. In relation to your love, who is your daddy? Because without this kind of principles, I can assure you, our society and our communities will continue to fragment. You don't wait for the people. You remember who you are. So we are meant to see our father and we are meant to emulate him. So those are two principles. Third point, the decisive measure. Now, the next thing you would say is, okay, <laughs> no, I shouldn't be tribal. Personal sacrifice over personal retaliation. And I should love my enemies. These are the principles that will assure restoration. <laughs> I think I prefer the Old Testament ones. These Jesus ones are too, they're too hard. Besides, you said the, the, the reality, we have blown, look, this isn't realistic. Why? Because you sum everything up as you do in verse 48. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. Who can do that? You are telling me to be like God. And that the only way we are going to ensure cohesive societies is when I become fully like God. I say, look, Femi, I like the breakdown that Jesus brings. But I think I'm still back to the first problem. Just like these people... Just like those people that he was speaking to. I don't have, I, I need to be empowered to do this thing. I can see it, but I can't see myself. Because certain people, the way they have treated me, you cannot understand how that has broken my heart. And I just don't feel like I can forgive them, let alone love them. It seems like this God's perfection only serves to show my brokenness. Yes, you are calling me to do this thing, but I think I need to be restored first before I can start trying to restore society. And I'll say you are dead right. Why? Because people cannot be restorative if they have not yet been restored. And so this brings us to God's decisive solution. Now remember, we said be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. So what we are saying is that we need human beings that are fully like God. But we don't have any human being that is fully like God. Really? You see, there was one human being that was both fully God and fully human. And God's decisive measure for restoration of the whole world was in that person. God's answer, God's decisive measure is one word, Jesus. Now, Jesus in what way? Well, follow me. Remember, when Jesus himself came and God gave Jesus, he gave Jesus to the world. He gave him indiscriminately out of love, and this time it wasn't out of love to the good people. and He just gave love to all his enemies, the unrighteous people that are there. God gave his son. Why? The first reason was not to first restore people 
to themselves, but to restore them to God. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. It says this, for, God, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous, that's Christ, the only righteous, for the unrighteous, to do what? To bring you back to God. All of us are broken. But for God to eventually bring this restoration here, he sends his son to be broken on our behalf so that we can be restored back to God. You see, on the cross, Jesus, who had fully he had full rights. He had full rights. Jesus had not sinned. But rather than apply like Stalionis, if Jesus applied an eye for an eye, he would have said something like this on the cross. Father, do to them as they have done to me. What did he say? Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. You see, only when we, can, we are restored to God can we start the process of being restored to one another. And so when we look at Jesus on the cross, we see the ultimate, the ultimate expression of God's restoration. But that's not enough. Because we have meant to follow the example, but we need power. Well, the 1 Peter 3.18 even goes further. It says, he was put to death in the body, but he was made alive in what? The spirit. Jesus not only died, but Jesus rose again. Why is that important for us, you and I? Because, you see, we say we are broken. Our brokenness is just like as though we were dead. And if I brought somebody that was dead, you don't apply Panadol. You don't apply first aid. What does the person that is dead need? He needs what? Nothing other than a resurrection. So Ephesians, 5, Ephesians 2 verse 5, 6 says, but because, uh, 45 says, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us what? Alive in Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. Do you understand? Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he says, look, I have restored these people to God by my death, but in my resurrection, just as I was made alive by the Spirit, I will give these people their, my spirit as well. They will come to new life. It is then the res people who are broken can become restored. And when they are restored, they can become restorative. So citizens of the kingdom are people who follow in the way of Jesus. They follow the example of Jesus because Jesus is God's ultimate revelation. He causes the rain to fall on the unjust and the just. But Jesus only loved his enemies by going to the cross. They follow the example, but they do not do it in their own strength. He has given them of his spirit so that they can be revived and have the power to become God's restorative agents. Guys, citizens of the kingdom, on our passport, says this, we are restorative people. Why? Because we have been restored to God through the person of Jesus Christ. And it's in that that we are restored to one another. Thank you for listening to the Gospel in Lagos. We pray you've been blessed by this message. To learn more about City Church, visit www.citychurchlagos.com City Church Love Jesus, love people, love Lagos.